sure you've heard the phrase, perhaps used it yourself. There is something about sons, children in general, they are like sponges. They soak up what they see around them. And any good parent who's been paying attention when they go to discipline their children often are confronted with the reality that their children act just like them. Spouses often quip that their sons are just like their husbands. Or husbands say that their daughters are just like their wives. Even if you didn't have a father growing up, you had men in your life who you emulated, who you wanted to be like. Daughters, even though you might not have grown up with a mother in your home, you emulated women around you. There's something about the way God created us to be like our fathers and like our mothers. It's good. It's right. The only problem with that is, is that often fathers and mothers fall short. And so their shortcomings often show up in the lives of their children, sometimes even at a greater extent than they did in yours. Well, if you've been paying attention as we've been going through the book of Genesis, that is a theme that you could trace through the entire book. That children act like their parents. And it seems to get worse which eat with each generation that follows. Uh, consider for just a moment Cain and Abel. If you were to go back and read in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel and the, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. There's someone who's absent from that story. And it's not God. He's there. But it's Adam. Where's Adam? What's he doing? He says nothing about it. The only narration from one of the parents is from the mother. Well, we could go on through Genesis as we see uh, things beginning to show up. Abraham, things show up in the life of Isaac that Abraham, Isaac does the same thing his dad does in trying to pass his wife off as his sister. Well, in the life of, Ju in the life of Judah, or excuse me, in the life of Jacob, it is no different. Jacob himself uh, kind of picks up on the passivity of his father. If you've ever read through the book of Genesis in one sitting, there's something you will notice. Isaac is really not heard of much. If you really look at the real estate of the entire book, Isaac is, is quite passive. Well, that passivity in Isaac's life, oh my goodness, it shows up very clearly in the life of Jacob. And the passivity when his daughter was assaulted in Shechem to the passivity among the, the fighting of these brothers in the story we'll read this morning. But something you'll notice this morning also is these 11 boys look just like their dad. They've grown up in a deceiver's home and they themselves have become deceivers. And it's tempting as we read this story of Joseph over the next few weeks. And, and, and let me just, I hope, encourage you to read 
through uh, these passages each week ahead of time. Come prepared. Come with your mind prepared with questions. Friend, if you read ahead, let me, let me just settle your soul this morning because you read one of the most scandalous chapters in all of the Bible, Genesis chapter 38. No preacher picks Genesis 38 to preach. No, no, no preacher says, that's the, that, if I want to preach, that's the chapter I want to preach. But there is something about Genesis chapter 38 that is so glorious and so gospel-saturated that I want to show you this morning. But more than that, as you read through the Joseph story, it's really not about Joseph. And one of the things I want to set us out on the right course this morning is that if Joseph was sitting here and he was retelling this story, Joseph wouldn't be the centerpiece God would be. Because the Joseph narrative, though it has been used by secular uh, folks to, to create really good plays, like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, There is nothing like reading your Bible. You do not need Hollywood to act out the Bible for you in order for you to grasp the beauty and the height. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does it for us this morning in vivid detail. But the point remains, the story is not about Joseph, but about the Lord. And this particular theme, we could could really organize this entire section of Genesis from chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book in chapter 50 with one theme. Namely, God's meticulous sovereignty over his people to save them for his glory alone. We know the passage well. Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph, from his own lips, summarizes what the entire thing is about. We could preach one sermon on this entire story. That God is meticulous in his sovereign care over his people. That though he may not show up in name and flashing lights, God is at work redeeming a people for his own glory. And no one, not even that same people, can derail his sovereign plan. Friends, that is the best news you will hear all day for the rest of your life. That nothing, no one, not even you, can mess up God's plan of redemption. Friends, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. It's the very first book in your Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible... It's right at the beginning. Just kind of open it up and start turning pages. If you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 31. Page 31. I'm not going to read this entire narrative, though it would be interesting to do so. I would encourage you, if you have not already, to this afternoon spend some time reading it. But I'm going to read a short portion here just to set the the stage. Beginning in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Beliah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him 
and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he was told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hey, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Well, friends, as we consider this passage in chapter 38 and 39, I want to organize it around one central theme. The Lord's purposes in redemption cannot be stopped by sinful men or by powerful nations. The Lord is meticulous in his sovereignty over his people and his promises to them to be with them wherever they go. This morning, I want to encourage us that as God's people, that the Lord is present among us. One of the central themes of this is that the Lord is with his people. He does not leave his people. He doesn't abandon his people. Even when his people abandon all sanity and do some of the most ridiculous things that anyone could do, God is still with his people. We're often tempted to think that God is only with us when things are going well. When there's money in the bank, when there is no bad health report, When our children are faithfully following Jesus. And all is good in our lives. But as this story reminds us. That God is with us even in the dark days. As he is in the mountaintops. So there's three points. Really organized around these three chapters. So chapter 37, 38, 39. The Lord is with us even when everyone is against us. The Lord was with Joseph. He had a plan for Joseph's life, even when everyone hated him. Even his father questions him. The Lord is with us even when we fall short of his glory. We're going to be confronted with some some stark pictures, some, some very ugly pictures of humanity in chapter 38. And finally, we'll see in chapter 39, the Lord is with us even in prosperity and adversity. The Lord is with us. He will not leave us. So let's consider these three points this morning as we go through the narrative. What I want to do this morning is sort of walk through it, comment on a number of things, and then sort of conclude uh, some thoughts on each of these chapters this morning. We're going to be moving very quickly. Uh, We're going to leave out uh, a lot of the detail um, for various reasons, and you'll figure that out real quick. Um, and, uh, but to summarize the, the overall and overarching points. 
Well, as Moses is reporting the story to us, as he's telling us about the life of Joseph, he begins by sharing with us a, a number of facts about uh, this son. Joseph is, at this point, uh, the youngest son, the second youngest son, his brother Benjamin, younger than him. His mother has died in, in childbearing, in giving birth to his younger brother Benjamin. She has died. Joseph, we are told, is sort of his father's favorite. And because he is the family favorite, because he is his father's favorite son, he's hated by his other brothers. Now, if you're just joining us into this story, you'll know that uh, it'd be help just to kind of freshen up on a couple of things. Number one, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, well, he has four wives. And naturally, we can see that's very confusing. Uh, he has four wives, one of which is recently deceased, and, and he has 11 sons and a daughter. He, he, he doesn't care about, Jacob doesn't care much about his daughter, and really the only sons that he really likes, well, is, is Joseph. But to make matters worse, uh, Jacob's first wife, Leah, and, and the kids that came from her, well, the firstborn, he... He's, just a, he's crazy. And, and he tried to take the family mantle by sleeping with one of the other wives. So to complicate things, we see that not only is this family a hot mess, but that Jacob continues to act foolishly. We're told that Joseph not only is the favorite, he wears it on his sleeves that he's the favorite. His father makes him a coat of many colors. Now in the Hebrew... Um, it's really probably a bad translation, uh, you know, so the multicolored coat, probably it's most likely, but they're really unsure what it means is, is some sort of royal coat, long sleeves. Uh, it shows up in, in later and later texts really pointing to some sort of royal robe, something that would set him apart. So regardless if it was a patchwork, multicolored thing, or if it had long robe, long sleeves, whatever it was, it was something that set him apart from his brothers as the favorite son. More than that, we're told in the story that Joseph runs around rubbing it into his brothers. Like, look at my coat. I'm amazing. More than that, I've had some dreams that are, you guys have to hear these dreams. We see a repetition throughout the text that the brothers hated Joseph, they hated him. They, could, they hated him so much they couldn't even talk to him. You ever had someone like that? Couldn't even speak peacefully to them? Well, this coat of many colors and the love that their father had for Joseph over and against them would become the impetus for, their, for the brothers' later hatred that materialized into selling Joseph into slavery. Later on in chapter 37, we were told that, that Joseph's brothers first were going to kill him. Then they decided to, to just sell him, make a profit off of him. We're told a number of these dreams here. As God is absent entirely from this chapter, as we read through it, the Lord isn't anywhere to be heard of. He shows up in these dreams that he gives to Joseph. For only the Lord could give these dreams to Joseph. And he gives him two dreams. And these dreams were to, to really be a reminder to Joseph. He'll use them later in chapter 40 and 41 as a reminder of God's goodness. And, and they're, they're prophetic. What they're saying is that God is going to do something in Joseph's life. 
That he is going to be with Joseph, even when everyone, even his own family is against him, that God is going to be with him. These dreams play an important part of the Joseph story, and they always come in doubles. Joseph later in life will become an interpreter of dreams as he's locked away in prison in Egypt. And they always come in pairs. And Joseph will give us some commentary later on and says that when one receives two dreams in pairs, it is a confirmation from God that they will happen. These dreams would be the ongoing fuel, the, the rivalry between his brothers and himself. The central interpretation of both of these dreams is that one day Joseph will ascend to power and rule over his family. What's fascinating is one reads this narrative and the unfolding uh, story that God is at work doing here. The story is not again about Joseph, but as I'm going to show you in a moment, it's really about Judah. Because the reader would be reading this story and think, okay, Joseph, through Joseph, is going to be the kings who are going to rule and reign over the nation of Israel. Remember, they've been promised that they're going to be a great nation. And a great nation needs to have great leaders. And so as you're reading through this, you're thinking, man, Joseph, this dude is legit. This guy is, is an honorable man. This guy is righteous. This guy, he, this is from his family is going to come. That promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Nope. Not at all. Well, as this story unfolds, we are told that his brothers go off to shepherd their, their flock. And his father comes to him and says, Joseph, I want you to go to your brothers and check on them. I want you to see, again, you have to see Jacob's foolishness here and his blindness to the fact that these brothers hate him so much. Why is Jacob sending Joseph down there? More than that, the area in which they are pasturing the flock is none other than Shechem. Shechem is the site of which these brothers slaughtered an entire village. Jacob is sending his son Joseph into uh, the shark's den. But God was with him. I want to point out a number of ways God was with him. Notice here uh, in verse 15 of chapter 37. And a man found Joseph wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Really? Joseph's wandering around. Happens to find a man who just happens to have heard that his brothers were going to Dothan. Really? Do you really believe that's possible? Do you really believe that Joseph, who, is, who has no idea where he's at, where he's going, just stumbles upon the right person at the right time, at the right moment in the day, who just happens to have the information he needs? Now, you could believe that is some good coincidence, or you could uh, have your eyes open and see that God is with Joseph even when everyone is against him. That God has a bigger plan, that God is meticulous in his sovereignty. 
God's in the details, we say. He is. Well, as Joseph makes his way to his brothers, his brothers see him from afar and they conspire among themselves to kill him. They have found the perfect opportunity and the perfect ruse. What they plan to do is to throw him in a hole, let him die, and go back to their father and tell their father that, that, that his beloved son, his favorite son, his, his favorite boy, has been slaughtered. They conspire among themselves. As you think about this, this is the family of God. This is the promised people of God. And this is how they act. If you don't understand, the, if you don't understand Genesis, you're going to have a real hard time understanding the rest of your Bible. This is a messed up family that God chooses to redeem for his own glory. You know, so often we think, man, Israel was the choice. Israel was God's treasured possession. No, they were a hot mess of sinful men and women that deserved God's judgment, but were met with his sovereign grace. And an essential theme of the entire book of Genesis is fratricide. That is the murder of siblings in a family. It began all the way back up in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. And it spiraled on down through history as brother tried to kill brother, even showing up in the life of their father, Jacob, as Esau wanted to see Jacob dead. Now the boys are acting just like Uncle Esau and wanting to kill their own brother. So much for the family of God. Because of these brothers' jealousy of Joseph's prophecy, they seek to stop God's plan. Now, I want you to think about what they're trying to do. God has said that Joseph is going to be the vehicle of God's deliverance of the people. Joseph will deliver not only the nation of Israel and 70 people, but will deliver the nation of Egypt and countless other people groups across the Mediterranean because of Joseph. And these brothers inspired by the evil one himself, seek to derail God's plan, but they can't. It's a reminder of how often the enemy sought to derail God's purposes of redemption, but yet God's purposes never failed. The cross of Christ is a perfect example of this very irony. As Satan seek to do God harm, God used it to bring about the salvation of sinners. When the story Reuben comes out, Reuben is the oldest son. He's the firstborn of Leah. He is, rises above the rest and he tries to deliver Joseph from their hands. He says, okay, hey, let's not like, like kill the guy. Let's, you know. And Reuben has a little motive. You'll, as I indicated, Reuben tried to take the throne, if you will, from his father. And so he's trying to save face with dad by rescuing the favorite son and restoring him to his father, hoping, hoping that through this act of grace, he will be welcomed back into his father's graces. His motives are less than pure. Well, as Joseph, or, uh, Reuben is off doing his own thing, Joseph's now in a pit, in a hole in the ground, uh, where they would have drawn up water, a well. Notice there in verse 25, they sat down to eat. I mean, 
They just killed a guy, and they're just, let's go have a snack. It again, just demonstrates the cold and calculated nature of the sons of Jacob, the Israelites. What I want you to show you here in verse 26 is that this story is more about Judah than it really is about Joseph. Judah pipes up. He's the only other one that says anything beyond Reuben. Judah would be the next in line. Of the four sons of Leah, Judah is the youngest. He would have been the next in line. Reuben's out. Simeon, Levi, they're out because they slaughtered an entire city. Now it's Judah. What's going to become of Judah? We're told here in the text in verse 26 that Judah seeks to make a profit. The story reveals to us that Judah is a man more motivated by selfish gratification than anything else. Judah convinces his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And they create a ruse where they take this coat, this garment, dip it in blood, and take it to their father. Verses 29 through the end of the chapter. And their father, of course, is devastated. And the irony is rich. Jacob himself is deceived by blood and a goat. This very same thing he used to deceive his father, Isaac, in order to receive blessing. Like father, like sons, is definitely true for this family. It's no coincidence. God is at work, though. Of all the places these these Midianite traders were going, they went to Egypt. Of all the places they could have been taking Joseph, they just happened to take him to Egypt and to sell him to Potiphar, an officer in Pharaoh's court. Friend, we know that what God was at work doing was to save a nation. We know that because we know the end of the story, right? In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 2, what these brothers meant for evil, Joseph says, God was using to not only save Joseph, but to save a nation. We're reminded of the same words that David used in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, God was with Joseph even in the midst of darkness, even when everyone was against him. Well, moving on quickly then to chapter 38, we see that the Lord is with us even when we fall short. Again, I notated how chapter 38 is filled. You you as a Christian might really wrestle with this chapter. Many have before you. How, How is this chapter even in your Bible? Filled with some graphic detail? You know, Judah, Judah's like that uncle you have. You know the one who always comes around and you're embarrassed by? Perhaps you have someone in your family who, because of their sordid lifestyle, they embarrass you. Everybody's like, oh, here comes crazy Uncle Judah. What's he up to now? Judah was a man who you didn't want hanging around. And we're told in the text here that Judah went away. He turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Harai. He had bad friends. 
Let's just say that. And he saw a certain Canaanite woman who is unnamed. And he has sons. And these sons turn out to be pretty bad. Like father, like son. These sons of Judah turn out to be worse than their father. Wicked in the way they behave. So wicked that God killed two of the three boys. The first son was married to another Canaanite by the name of Tamar. And the practice was that the firstborn, when he dies, the wife would then go to the secondborn. The secondborn would raise up offspring for his brother. But Judah's sons were so wicked, they, they could not. They were so self, selfish as their father was selfish. They, they couldn't stand the thought of raising up children. And, and we see in the story that, that these brothers end up dying and and Judah's afraid for his youngest son, and, and so he doesn't let him get together with Tamar. He, he's afraid, and well, and Tamar gets sent back to her father's house. Some leader Judah is, disgraces this poor woman, sends her away. He's self-calculating and wicked. As the story unfolds, we're told that Judah, in chapter 38 and verse 12, that Judah's wife passes away and he goes to comfort himself as he goes on to comfort himself with his with his best bud his best friend who continues to lead him lead him into sin we're told that that tamar finds this as an opportunity to get back we're not really sure what her motives were to begin with she was supposed to be away waiting for judah's youngest son to be married to him but instead, she takes matters into her own hands. She knows that Judah cannot be trusted. And the story unfolds, Judah is a man motivated more by sexual desire and self-gratification than he is by anything else. He is far from the Lord. Through their exchange, Tamar becomes impregnated by Judah. And Judah is tricked. And as you read this sort of tale, and you see even in verse 21, some sort of cult prostitution was involved in this story. You see, Judah was worshiping a deity rather than worshiping the Lord. We see in verse 24 that three months later, Judah was told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she has become pregnant by immorality. And Judah responds, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah himself, a man of wickedness, motivated by righteous indignation. Well, as it comes, she proves herself to be more righteous. In verse 26, something tremendous happens, though. When it's found out that Judah is the one who's done these wicked acts, notice how he responds. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah confesses his wrongdoing. It's the very first time he does it. Something happened that day when he was exposed in his sin. It began a long 
and hard road of recovery, of turning from sin and trusting in his Lord. Judah will be a new man when Joseph meets him later on in the story. Judah will be a man of righteousness, a man of godliness, a man very different than the one depicted in chapter 38. But you have to love the raw and unfiltered view that Moses gives us. The Bible does not whitewash the people of God. He, nowhere do you find them cleaned up and looking pretty. Because God doesn't save cleaned up pretty looking people. Even the instrument of salvation himself, Jesus Christ, Isaiah 30, 53 says that he was nothing to look at. That no one was drawn to Jesus because he was a good looking man. No, that his appearance was so torn and twisted on the cross that men turned their faces from him. You see, God doesn't save cleaned up righteous people. And friend, this morning you might think that, man, I've got to get my life right. I've got to stop doing this. I've got to do these things and then God will accept me. That is not the way the gospel of Jesus Christ works. It begins by confessing your need of someone more righteous than yourself. You see, God used Tamar to bring about a great end to a terrible situation. Judah had failed in his fatherly duty. He had failed to fulfill the, the Abrahamic promise to, to raise up a nation. But it will be Judah that his father Jacob will say that, that through your family line will come the lion of the tribe of Judah, the savior of the world. As the story ends in chapter 38, we are told that, that Tamar has twins. And one is highlighted. His name is Perez. Through the line of Perez, through the family, a number of generations later, from this family line would come the king, King David. And more than that, from that family line, from this family line, from chapter 38, from this family, not the, not the family that has their you know, house looking pretty. Not the family that's got all the, 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 the manicured lawn. Not the family that looks good. But from the family that looks the worst would come the Savior of the world. Because God is meticulous in His sovereignty. Because God wants to ensure us that He saves by grace alone through Christ alone. The Lord was with his people even when they weren't with him. Even when they were acting like fools and rebelling against him, God was still at work. Bringing about the Savior. Working even in sinful lives. Well, very quickly and finally, chapter 39. Back to Joseph. Friends, again, I, I just want to point out we're leaving a lot of details out. But I want you to see that chapter 38 belongs where it belongs. Because Moses wants to ensure that you're not confused about who the leader is going to be. And whose family is to have the prominent place. 
He puts it there so you would know that, okay, it's through this family line. I just imagine for a moment, before we move on, you're, you're like from the family of Perez, right? You're, you're, in, you're from the tribe of Judah, and you just, had, you just heard that publicly read. Like, wow, my family's messed up. Um, some family tree we have, um, right? But it reminds us of God's grace and his kindness. Well, finally, the Lord is with us even in prosperity or persecution. The story, the camera shifts, the story picks back up with Joseph, now down in Egypt, sold into Potiphar's house. And a number of things I want us to look at as we conclude. Chapter 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man and was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph's enslaved. Against his will. Sold by his brothers. Left for dead. But God was still with him. God caused him to succeed. You'll be reminded of Genesis chapter 28. Behold, I am with you. This was the Lord's promise to Jacob. I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. The Abrahamic covenant is now being mediated through Joseph. That not only is Joseph himself becoming successful and blessed, but the nations are being blessed through him. This was the promise that God had given to the nation of Israel. When you follow me, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the people. You will be a blessing to the nations. Well, kind of think about that in reverse to chapter 38. When you rebel against God, you're not a blessing to the nations. You're a curse to the nations. People die because of you. An important lesson for the nation of Israel to hear and learn But the point of this passage is that we must not moralize the story, you know, be Joseph's and resist temptation. I know you've heard that sermon. You know, if you grew up in church and you were a teenager, I bet you you, youth pastor or some loving little little person preached to you from taught you from Genesis 39 that you're to flee temptation. That's a good morally gross story because that's not the point of this story. This story is not about you fleeing temptation. This story is not about you resisting uh, sexual temptation and running naked if you have to. Get away. It sounds right. It sounds good. It really does. It seems to fit. And a point could be made. A, A passing application could be made of this. But the point of this story is more about the Lord than it is about Joseph. That the Lord is with him. He will not leave him. In fact, he's blessing him. He's prosperous. But he's still enslaved. I mean, you could be prosperous, but you still aren't free. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. You're, you're, You're stuck. Well, as time goes on, he's so blessed that we're told in verse 6 that he's a good looking guy. And because of this, his master, Potiphar's wife, tries to seduce him. Again and again, she goes after him. But Joseph resists it. Joseph is a more righteous man. This is, again, more about Judah than it really is about Joseph. 
where Judah ran after his gratification. He just, if he wanted it, he got it. We see that Joseph is chased. Joseph is the man who's self-controlled and restrained, not Judah. Oh, the ways of God, how inscrutable they are. Meaning you can't question them. You, You see, the whole story of Genesis is about really undermining our wrong notions about who the Lord is and how he operates. You see, this world has always struggled. This isn't a new thing. This isn't an American thing. This is a human problem, a sin problem. We think that the powerful, we think the rich, we think those that are prominent, those who are well-educated, those who are successful in this world are those whom we should follow. Not God. God actually works in the complete opposite of that. He saves not those who deserve to be saved. He does not save the rich. In fact, he confounds the rich and the proud and the wise by saving those who are weak, saving those who are dumb and foolish. The story of Joseph is the story about how God saves in radical ways that are beyond our ways. Joseph goes from prosperity in the house of Potiphar to the dungeons in the king's prison. And as you look at just this rise and fall of Joseph's life, I mean, he was the favorite son. He's sold into slavery. Then he's prosperous again. And then what happens? He falls. Friends, this is the story of Israel, a rising and falling. Glory to humiliation. To glory again. It's the story of Christ. From glory. To suffering. To glory again. See God is hardwired in humanity. The story of redemption. Where he is redeeming a people. Through judgment. From prosperity. To death. To being wrongly convicted being lied about, ultimately in prison. As the story concludes with Joseph locked away because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Joseph doesn't complain. You don't hear Joseph uttering words of complaint throughout the story, but his continually entrusting to God. A number of things I want to point out as we conclude. Look at verse 23. Again, Joseph has gone from prosperity to nothing, to prosperity to nothing. And now he has nothing. He's locked away in a prison. He's lost that successful slave job he had there at Potiphar's house. Imprisoned. And notice what happens again. Prosperity. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Friends, as a church, we need to remember that in good times and bad times, the Lord is with us. We must fight the temptation to think that because we are succeeding or because we are facing adversity, that the Lord is not with us. You are more like the saints in the scriptures when you are suffering than you are when you are prospering. In this world, 
We must trust by faith the promises of Christ that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Brother, sister, how are you tempted to doubt the Lord and the Lord's presence in your life? For he is meticulous in his sovereign care of your life. These are not just stories to encourage you by, but, but to confront you with the God of these stories, that he is sovereign, not of just the life of Jacob and Joseph and Judah, but he's sovereign over your life. And he is bringing about a work in your life. And you can trust that work. You can believe in that. Friend, if you are tempted to doubt God's goodness in the life of your family, he is at work in your children. He's at work in your grandchildren. Just trust God has a plan. He has a purpose. You can't make someone a Christian, but God will convert a sinner. Trust God's plan, not your plan. Not for your life or for someone else's life. He is sovereign. Believe in Him. Trust Him. He will get you home. I conclude with these words from our Savior. In John chapter 6. Jesus told his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I tell you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now listen, listen to what Jesus says. All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that the Father has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. There's a lot of I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Do you believe he will? Because only a God who is meticulous in his sovereignty over his creation and over his redeemed can do it. And he will for his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would know you as the God who is sovereign. That this would not just be a theological truth that we spit out of our mouths or recite. But it be something we depend on. Not only for our own souls, but for the souls of those around us. God, you are in control. We trust this for your glory and our eternal good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.